Good morning. Uh, my name is Gina Murdoch, and I just want to take a moment to recognize the sacred space that we're in this morning and invite you all to take a deep breath into your hearts and to exhale very slowly and just to rest into the awareness of being in this healing temple this morning with these beautiful beings, all of us. I want to thank Lexi for putting this together and bringing these amazing uh, friends of ours from afar here. I've been invited to read some words from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who uh, is a very, very special being. And these are direct quotes. So when I say I, it's not me. It's His Holiness. And uh, I tried to work on the accent, but I couldn't quite get it. So (laughs) you'll have to use your imagination. And I wonder if I may indulge in just one moment, because uh, many of you know I'm a yogi and a yoga teacher. And one thing that we do in yoga is the sound of om. And om is a very sacred sound as well. And I thought if I could give you all a chance to chant as well, that might feel really good. So if you're open to it, Lexi. Absolutely. (laughs) I never ask for uh, permission. We always ask for forgiveness later. So I'm going to invite you all. We're going to do this three times together, the sound of om. And I want to invite you just to let your heart sing, to take that music that we heard from Colton and this beautiful chanting that we heard and let that resonate from your heart into this space. So let's close our eyes to begin and start with a deep breath in through the nose and an exhale out through the mouth. All together, inhale. Two more times. Inhale. that universal sound be a reminder that we are all one, connecting into that space as we share this experience together this morning. Keeping your eyes closed, if you like, just to take in the words of His Holiness. In every group, different points of view will occur, but I see this as an advantage. The more we come across different opinions, the greater our opportunity to gain a greater understanding of others and to improve ourselves. If we battle against anyone who thinks differently from us, everything becomes hard. We should not hold rigidly to our personal views, but enter into dialogue in an open-minded way. In this way, we will be able to compare viewpoints and discover new ones. What we do in every moment brings about new circumstance which themselves will contribute to the arising of other events. Whatever we do, we are participating, whether voluntarily or not, in the chain of cause and effect. In the same way, our future pleasure and suffering will result from present causes and conditions, even if the complexity of these connections escapes us. We are therefore responsible for ourselves and for others." 
Let us now consider the role of compassionate love and kind-heartedness in our daily lives. Does this ideal of developing it to the point where it is unconditional mean that we must abandon our own interests entirely? Not at all. In fact, it is the best way of serving them. Indeed, it could even be said to constitute the wisest course for fulfilling self-interest. For if it is correct that these qualities such as love, patience, tolerance, and forgiveness are what happiness consists in, and if it is also correct that compassion, as I have identified it, is both the source and the fruit of these qualities, then the more we are compassionate, the more we provide for our own happiness. The more we are compassionate, the more we provide for our own happiness. The Bodhisattva ideal. Arguably, the key religious concept that emerges through the Mahamaya, Mahayana, Mahayana. Mahayana movement <clears throat> within Buddhism is the Bodhisattva ideal. A Bodhisattva literally meaning one with a heroic, a heroic aspiration toward enlightenment is an altruistic being with tremendous courage. Bodhisattvas are those individuals who, through capable, though capable of personal liberation, choose to take upon their shoulders the task of freeing others from suffering. The compassion of such a being is boundless and transcends all considerations of division. The Bodhisattva is a friend, a servant, and a spiritual kin to all beings, regardless of personal acquaintance. The depth of a Bodhisattva's heartfelt compassion is expressed through the various media, including visual arts. In Tibetan culture, perhaps the most famous depiction of this infinite compassion can be found in the legend of the thousand-armed Chen Rezig. Chen Rezig. Chen Rezig. (laughs) The Bodhisattva of compassion. In this legend, we see that Chen Rezig, compassionate concern for all beings, was so intense, he found that unless he had a thousand arms and a thousand eyes, he could not adequately fulfill the wishes of the infinite sentient beings. It was the force of his single-pointed aspiration that one day gave him those thousand arms and thousand eyes. To this day, this image remains a potent religious symbol to the followers of Mahayana Buddhism. The following prayer, which is, incidentally, one of the verses most quoted by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, captures this spirit succinctly. As long as space abides... And as long as sentient beings remain, may I too abide and dispel the suffering of beings. So the invitation is to take those words into your heart as we continue this service this morning. And my heartfelt gratitude and thanks to Lexi and to this beautiful gathering this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. About 20 years ago, I met the Tibetan Buddhist monks for the first time. For over 20 years, I have learned a great deal from them, leading up to my most recent exposure to their teachings, a course in compassion offered by Geshe Lobsang Tenzin, who's here with his lovely wife, Irene, today. 
This last series of lectures awakened in me a desire to share with you a few of the messages that I learned from his class. To quote the Dalai Lama, the purpose of Buddhism is not to convert people. It is to give them the tools so that they can create greater happiness, so that they can be happy no matter what their religion. I feel that no one has the right to impose his or her beliefs on another person. Spiritual development does not necessarily mean any kind of religious faith. It is about basic human good qualities. These are human affection, involvement, honesty, discipline, and human intelligence properly guided by good motivation. But all religious teachings and traditions teach us to be good human beings, to be warm-hearted people, unquote. To me, to be loving is what really matters. Buddhism does not believe that it has the one and only true religion, nor does it even believe that Buddhism will last forever. They believe in the philosophy of impermanence, nor are all the ideas in Buddhism fixed and unchangeable. To this day, thousands of monks debate the idea of Buddhism and are willing to change their ideas if a convincing argument is proposed which makes any of their principles seem incorrect. Personally, I find this openness and flexibility profound and beautiful. We are so fortunate to have the same openness here at the chapel with Nicholas's leadership. In addition, unlike some religions, Buddhism does not want you to have blind faith. The Buddha taught that you must never follow someone simply because that person claims to know the truth, but that you must learn the truth for yourself. And thus, thus, no faith will be required. In that sense, Buddhism is more like a science than a religion. It takes empirical evidence as the foremost authority. Yet almost reminds us that, as Geshe Lobsang Tenzin would say, the absence of evidence is not the evidence for its absence. To quote the Buddha, O monks, just like examining gold in order to know its quality, you should put my words to the test. A wise person does not accept them merely out of respect. To practice correctly, whichever path we follow, we should never go contrary to common sense. Most of you already know the basic outline of the life of Buddha. In short, he was concerned that there was great suffering in the world, and he was motivated to find the answer to the cause and cure of suffering. The very simple version of what he taught was, one, everything has the potential to cause suffering. Two, suffering is caused mainly by what we think and believe. Three, since suffering has a cause and the cause is identified, suffering can be cured. And four, then he told how to do it. And these are known as the Four Noble Truths. The first of the Four Noble Truths explains what may seem obvious. Life contains many possibilities for suffering. Whatever we have that is good can be lost. Possessions are lost, health wanes, and everyone dies someday. Every living living creature is subject to those same things. 
However, the Buddha said, most of our suffering is not caused directly by the things that happen, but by what we think about those things. Geshe Lab St. Tenzin said, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. This is the second noble truth. The third noble truth says that since our suffering is caused by our own minds, we can learn to change our perceptions and greatly diminish and even eliminate suffering. The fourth noble truth teaches the techniques to accomplish this goal through mindfulness, restraining oneself, and cultivating discipline. Meditation is just one of the many tools to do this. All Buddhist teachings come in two forms, theory and practice. Buddhism doesn't require any blind faith, but insists you prove things for yourself. It begins with awareness and understanding of suffering, how it is self-imposed, and how it can be eliminated. The first part of the theory is explained in the Buddhist philosophy by two interrelated ideas called dependent arising and emptiness. Dependent arising says that when a sentiment being and something else meet, another thing is created which is the product of their interaction and is not contained in either thing in and of itself. Suffering is created by our own prejudice and perception. Suppose you have a little boy named Matthew, and he has used his crayons to draw all over your walls. How do you feel at that moment? Very upset, furious. You have allowed the drawings on the wall to be the source of your pain. The negative thoughts and emotional suffering you are feeling are the result of your thoughts about the crayoned wall. But is it because of the drawings themselves? No. It is your perception of the drawings that are causing you pain. The drawings themselves didn't create those feelings. Matthew saw the same marks and probably thought, wow, they're pretty cool. You, however, felt you did because of your own perception and opinion about such things. You just chose suffering. You may think that the drawings on the wall justify your feelings, but the philosophy says that your feelings are not absolutely necessary. The issue is not the thing itself. It's how you deal with it. Here's another example. Three people are walking in the woods. As they pass under a tree, a snake falls down and lands in front of them. The first person is a man who lives in the city, probably New York, and since he's never seen a living snake before, he's totally freaked out and begins running for his life. The second person was once in the military. He was taught that there were only five types of deadly poisonous snakes in the area, and the rest pose no immediate danger. He also knows from his experience that this particular snake is not poisonous. So he has no concern and feels nothing. And the third person is a herpetologist, which means that she is well-versed in snakes and other reptiles. She knows immediately that this snake is very rare. She has never seen one this before in her studies, And she's ecstatic, imagining all the accolades and advancement that this will bring to her career. So, here we have three people 
in the same place, at the same time, encountering the same snake. One is frightened, one feels nothing, and one is excited. The theory of dependent arising says that fear, boredom, or bliss is not an inherent property of the snake, meaning those feelings are not contained by the snake. It is a combination of the snake and the mind of the witness together that cause those feelings to arise in each person based on their own perception and experience. A Buddhist philosopher would say the snake is empty. That is, it does not carry those things within it that automatically cause your emotions. This philosophy of emptiness is often translated into English as though the thing in question is not real. But this is really a bad translation. Buddhist refers to things as empty because we fill them with our perception, our beliefs, and our prejudices. The the result is something that is manufactured by our human minds. Thus, the snake by itself cannot cause fear, boredom, or bliss. The emotional reaction was dependent on both the snake's existence and the perception of another being. The dependent arising doctrine is essentially saying that you construct the emotional content of the world in your own mind. You need to see for yourself the prejudices you live with and how they may add suffering to your life in order to change them. The core belief in Buddhism is that you must think for yourself. So for us to actually see that these things are so, our prejudices and our fickle perception, in a proof-driven technological world, we need something that will show us these things for our very selves. I believe this can be achieved through meditation. There are many types of meditation. In many ways, it is taught. One type is calm abiding, which is an exercise to see the scattered nature of our mind and sow the seeds to stabilize it. Another type of meditation is insight meditation, which cultivates critical thinking about the philosophies and what they mean in our everyday lives. These two types of practices help us come to realizations, which in Buddhist terminology means that we understand something in such a way that it changes our lives forever. When we begin to meditate, we begin to practice patience and self-love. Calm abiding meditation is a form of mindfulness, meaning simply paying attention to the present moment without prejudice, without judgment. Humans innately grasp for meaning through their thoughts, often holding onto unhealthy thought processes. Buddhists call it attachment. As a thought enters our mind, we engage and absorb ourselves in it, even if it hurts us. We keep returning to those thoughts in the cycle of separation and negativity, and it prevents us from discovering our own true nature, which is pure and great compassion. It prevents us from living in the here and now. After you develop a regular meditation practice, you begin to see the interconnectedness of all things. And this brings us to the core values of Buddhism, love and compassion. Buddhists define compassion as the wish to help free others 
from dissatisfaction or suffering. And love is defined as a wish to give happiness to others. So the Buddhists strive to remove suffering and give happiness. Happiness in Buddhism is defined as inner peace and learned wisdom, which differs from our Western view of happiness or pleasure. True happiness can only be attained by thinking outside of your immediate external physical needs and desires. To achieve happiness, Buddhists rely on two philosophical ideas, impermanence and interconnectedness. The doctrine of impermanence says that nothing will last forever. You will eventually die, and when you do, your wealth, friends, and status will not be taken with you. Mountains will eventually wear down, and oceans dry up. Since all things are constantly changing, you cannot count on them for happiness. The Buddhists sometimes call their teachings the sacred secret of happiness. The highest teaching of all Mahayana Buddhists, including Tibetan monks, is the desire to do everything for the benefit of all beings. It is not just that they desire to be unselfish. It is the profound understanding that we ourselves are those beings. We do not exist in a vacuum as individuals. Virtually every belonging and everything you see around you was made by someone else. Every aspect of your life was touched by another. Imagine what your standard of living would be if there were no other people. Most of whatever knowledge is contained in your head came from an outside source. You could not even think if somebody had not invented language because you think in words. Through meditation calm abiding, and insight meditation, our oneness becomes apparent. Our desire to be happy and how we can accomplish that will gain clarity because we understand that it is a product of our perceptions. We can then meditate to control our perceptions and go from a place of judgment to a place of observation without judgment and then to a place of self-love and love for all beings. This process of first recognizing facts and then analyzing them without judgment can be applied to aspects of our everyday life with great success. Buddhist philosophy teaches us that you have to love yourself in order to love others. So you want to cultivate your authentic self. Insight meditation allows reflection on what you already know, any lies you tell yourself, any feelings of anger you show others, any negative traits you may have. They do not generate feelings of love for yourself or others. Without judgment, without dwelling on what you think is bad in yourself, seeing how negative thoughts will harm you will lead to their end. The next part is extending that love and compassion to other beings. Most of us have no trouble doing this for people we like or even those who we're neutral about. But what about people we don't like? And what about very terrible people like members of ISIS or other proponents of hatred? It is easy to cut those people out of our equation. 
because they are difficult, and we may feel powerless or restraint to change anything. But practicing love and compassion toward them is actually the very best thing to do. Suppose you want to have bigger, stronger biceps. What would you do? You'd probably lift some weights. And if you're looking for size and strength and not just definition, you need heavy weights. If the weight is too easy to lift, it will do nothing. If it's just a little difficult to lift, it may increase definition, but the muscles will not grow larger or stronger. As with muscles, as with all things, they develop against resistance. The more resistance, the more development. The most common form of compassion meditation is, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. How can we want people like ISIS to be happy, healthy, and live with ease? This is a misunderstanding of common words and ideas. We don't believe we can make anyone happy, healthy, or anything just by wishing for it. The very first lesson the Buddha taught was that we cause our own happiness or suffering depending on our own actions. If we are not kind or loving to others, we create the conditions that favor us not having a good life. So we wish health and happiness on those we consider evil, beyond help, hopeless. We are actually wishing that they will discover the Buddha's message. Changing your ways to becoming loving and kind is the only way to happiness. And aren't these difficult people the ones who truly need compassion and love? History and science, as well as our own hearts, have shown us that many who are evil can trace that back to the feeling of not being loved. So in sending our love and compassion to the difficult people, we hope that our love can act as a seed for them to develop their Buddha nature. Wishing good things for all is the same as wishing for a world where all people are good. And leading by example is the only way to enact change. I hope that you'll be motivated to practice compassion and love for yourself and others. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. And through meditation, we can cultivate the loving qualities we wish to possess. So now let's end my talk with just a three-minute meditation. Get comfortable in your seat. Relax your body. And start by relaxing the muscles in your face. Allow your mind to settle into silence. Gently close your eyes. And now focus on your breath. And silently ask yourself, who am I? Beyond the roles that I play every day, who am I really? Who am I? And now silently ask yourself, what do I want? Beyond my necessities, what do I really 
want. And what is my purpose? What are my gifts to heal myself and others through service? What is my purpose? And what am I grateful for? What do I feel gratitude for as I center into my heart? And now take a deep breath and let go of those questions. And now silently repeat to yourself your first and last name starting with I am. I am. And now drop your last name and silently say your first name starting with I am. I am. And now drop your first name and just silently say, I am, I am. And remember your essential nature, your soul, is silence. Silence leads us to infinite possibilities in our lives. So now we will silently meditate together for two minutes. And when you are ready, you can gently and slowly open your eyes and bring your awareness back to this beautiful sanctuary.
And now we have Colton, who's going to play a magnificent piece. Thank you.